Reading through Exodus chapter 4, verse 17. Exodus 3, 16. This is the word of the Lord. God told Moses, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and of Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Interesting that the elders will say God met with us when he actually only met with Moses. But they say that was good enough for us. We'll take that meeting as our own. And Moses represents us in that meeting. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. Literally, he says, the king of Egypt will not send you out unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out or literally send out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will send you out or let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Then Moses answered. But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say Yahweh did not appear to you. Yahweh said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But Yahweh said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand. That they might believe that Yahweh, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, Yahweh said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to Yahweh, oh, my Lord. Literally, he says, oh, my Adonai, the generic name for Lord. I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then Yahweh said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? Now, therefore, go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, oh, my Adonai. My Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord, our God, stands forever.
firm forever. Amen? Amen. You may be seated. Today we're looking at doubting Moses, mainly from Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 through 17. We live in a generation of doubt. We should find it easy to identify with Moses' struggle. We've been burned by too many politicians. We've been hurt by people that have been so close to us, even family members have hurt us more than any other. We've been let down, turned down. We've been set up, chewed up, spit out, lied to, denied, abused, banned, censored, conned, scammed. We wonder what goes on behind our backs. We wonder what goes on under our noses or in our beds, in someone else's mind, in someone else's boardroom, behind closed doors. We've been trained to be skeptical, to doubt, to not believe everything we hear, even if it's on TV. We've been trained to and forced to question authority, to take a second look, to get a second opinion, to suspect what we're told and to inspect what we're sold. We've been told to trust science, yet some scientists distort the data. The experts still disagree. They sell our secrets to the spies. We've been told to trust pastors. But some shepherds have devoured the sheep for their own financial gain or sexual appetites. We've been told, trust your instincts. But sometimes our instincts stink. If you struggle with doubt or questioning other people, well, welcome to America. Welcome to our generation. If you doubt God and his word, his promises, you're in pretty normal company. Most people do doubt God at some point in their lives, if not regularly. This sermon is basically about all of us. It's called Doubting Moses, but you just insert your name in there because I believe it has something to tell us as well. Moses was this man who grew up for 40 years in Egypt. Nearby, his own people, the Hebrews, were in slavery, but he wasn't a slave because he grew up in privilege. In high class, educated by the Egyptians, he was in the privileged class, the overseers, and his brothers and sisters were slaves. They were the oppressed. For 40 years, he grew up there. Then he murdered a man, an Egyptian. He was forced to flee as a refugee into the wilderness, where he took up a new profession, being a shepherd. And so he spent another 40 years out there in the Midianite desert, tending to the flocks. And when he was about 80-something years old, God appeared to him, in, as it's recorded in Exodus chapter 3, in a burning bush. And God spoke his name to Moses. I am who I am. My name is Yahweh. And I'm the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you will go and lead my people out of Egyptian slavery. But we read here in chapter 4 that Moses had his doubts. And you have to wonder, don't you, if you haven't really read this chapter before or spent much time studying it. Well, I thought Moses was the great hero of the Israelites and that the Jewish people revered him higher than any other man. And that's true. Even if you look at Hebrews chapter three, uh, it, it describes Jesus, who is the son of God. And it says, well, Jesus is superior to the angels. And then kind of as like and better than that, he's even superior to Moses. Hebrews chapter three. I mean, see the argument like <laughs> Jesus is even superior than Moses, who's like the best human that ever lived in the eyes of the Jews. So isn't it interesting that. Right here in Exodus, throughout the book, Moses is being brutally honest in his autobiography because he wrote most of this account. He's brutally honest to say, I'm just a weak, sinful, doubting man. This is what I said to God. I questioned God. I, I doubted God when he told me that I would be the deliverer. 
the liberator and leader of Israel. Over and over throughout the story, the Israelites ask Moses, hey, Moses, who do you think you are? What makes you so special? What gives you the right to think that you should be telling us what to do? And over and over, Moses says, guys, I did not apply for this position. God dragged me kicking and screaming to be your leader. And I doubted him and I doubted myself. But here I am called by God to this position. We see his first doubts in chapter three, verse 11, when he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Then you see another doubt in chapter three, verse 13. What if the Israelites ask me your name? What am I going to tell them? I don't know your name, God. I grew up in Egypt. I'm not sure which which God you are appearing to me. And God says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Tell them the I am has sent you. My name is Yahweh, which means I am powerful. I am presence. I am with you forever. I've made a covenant with you and I'll never leave you. But then here in chapter four, Moses continues his questions, his doubts, his uncertainty. And that's the first thing we'll see is that Moses continues to doubt. He's so uncertain about God and himself. In chapter four, we see God giving Moses three gracious signs, three signs of authority to say this will prove this will give you credentials. This will back you up so that when you go to the people and to Pharaoh, they will know that I sent you. And Moses continues to doubt even after God gives him those signs. Now he's doubting his own ability as a man. And so then God gives him a final gracious helper, another sign to help him in his weakness, in his questions. You can summarize this whole section by saying that 2 Corinthians chapter 12 is true of this, that God's power is made perfect in our weakness. God says, okay, you are weak, you are doubtful, but watch what I do. Moses first questions God in his uncertainty. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 9 is where we're going to focus right now. You'll see that God has already told Moses in chapter 3 that he will be the deliverer. But Moses says, I don't think they're going to like my I have a, I have a dream speech, God. I'm going to go to them and say, I had this great dream. I had this great vision at the bush. I'll be your deliverer. I don't think it's going to work. I don't think it's going to win them over. God plainly says, they will listen to you in chapter 3. Moses firmly says in chapter 4, verse 1, but look. They will not listen to me. This flatly contradicts God. They will listen to you. No, they won't. It's pretty bold. Now, before you start being too hard on Moses, let's just put ourselves in his shoes for a minute. Or his sandals. Or, I guess, he's at the burning bush. He took his sandals off because it's holy ground. And I'll just imagine with me for a minute that you might have done the same thing. Right? You've got Moses appearing to a group of a couple million people. Hebrews, slaves, who we don't think from the scriptural record that God has revealed himself to them in any obvious way for 400 years, 430 years to be precise. So what makes Moses think they're going to listen to him when he shows up out of nowhere and he's not even been living among them as a slave? And he says, hey, I've come from 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in Midian, and I'm here to tell you that God will rescue you and that I'll be the man to do it. And he's 80 years old. What would you do with an 80 year old man? It came to you out of nowhere and said something like this. You'd probably medicate him, put him in a retirement home somewhere off to the side, give him some jello to eat and say, you go ahead and keep talking about these God delusions you're having, about how God's appearing to you and talking to you, telling us what to do. That's what Moses, I mean, Moses was a realist like you and me. He was saying, I don't think this is going to work, God. I mean, he, he's living by sight and not by faith. The Bible says we should live by 
faith and not just by sight. But Moses says, I can't see it working, therefore I won't believe it. I can't, so I won't. I won't follow your call, God. I won't do what you're telling me to. Now, let me ask you this. This is an important question. Is doubt like this okay for the Christian? You know, you've heard probably many preachers or many Christians. Maybe you've said it yourself. Like, it's okay to doubt. Doubt's good. We want to help each other. Relax. It's fine. Everybody doubts. So we try to give each other permission to doubt. And you know what? It's true. Everyone doubts. Unless they're weird somehow. Most people have doubts creep into their minds or their hearts at some point in their life. And they have to ask hard questions. And they're looking for hard answers. And sometimes they find the answers. And sometimes they look for a very long time. And they're never quite satisfied. But the question is, is it okay to doubt like this? Well, I'm not recommending at all that you deny your doubts or that you hide them. God already knows them. You might as well be honest and just say, hey, God, I'm having trouble believing you. I'm having trouble believing a story of a stick and a snake or water turning to blood or these things. Just be honest with God. Tell him what you're thinking right now. He already knows. But let me recommend that doubt can be handled two different ways. Doubt can have a purpose to it with a destination of I hope that I end up believing and I want to follow or doubt can end up going another direction saying I really don't want to follow God and this is a good excuse because this is kind of a weird story or I don't understand something in the Bible or I don't understand what God did in my life or my friend's life so therefore that's my reason not to believe anymore. See, doubt can take you down one road of saying I want to ask honest questions and I really want God to answer me. I'm looking for answers. I'm open. I want to believe. Help my unbelief. Or you can go the other way and say, I'm going to shut myself down and be bitter and angry towards God. And this is a good excuse, as any, that I don't understand what's going on here in my life or in the Bible. If you have uh, these sorts of doubts in your mind and you're not sure what to do with them, let me recommend a really good book that I read a few years ago called Doubt by Oz Guinness. O.S. Guinness. Oz Guinness. He's a great thinker. Uh, He's helped the church in a lot of ways to think through Issues like calling, he's got another book on calling, he's got a book on doubt, I highly recommend it. He says there are healthy doubts, God-given doubts that cause us to search the scriptures and search the truth in the world and find answers, even if we're not able to find every answer to every question, we can end up in a healthy place, a better place. Doubt is not a disease, it's simply a symptom telling you to go get help, and you find the right help when you seek the truth. Or you can use your doubt to... Make excuses and, and stop believing. But as you wrestle with your doubts, remember this. You're questioning a real person. You're questioning a real God when you say, I don't believe this or I'm not sure about this one. You're questioning a real person. How do you like it when people question you, when people doubt you? I had a friend when I was a youth pastor, maybe 20 years ago. He was uh, two years old when his dad drowned. And at the age of 18, he began receiving the life insurance money from his father's death. Corey, my friend, began buying lots of cool trinkets and gadgets with all this money that he suddenly had. Got some cool night vision goggles we used one time to kill mice in my apartment with the lights out. That was pretty fun. He also bought an $800 mountain bike, which is a lot more expensive than mine. And one day he was riding around the neighborhood in the bike and the police stopped him and the police officer said, son, where'd you get that bike? Now, Corey was a young black man and it probably wouldn't surprise you that when he said, I bought the bike with my own money, 
the police officer said, I doubt it. Tell me where'd you steal the bike from? Now, how do you think Corey felt? How do you feel when people doubt you? You don't want people to doubt you. When I was uh, a few years into ministry here in Chicago, there was a family that some of the kids were coming to our church and our youth program, and there was some abuse going on in the home that the kids kept telling us about. And finally, I had to do something about it. This is the only time I've ever done this, but I called the hotline for child abuse with Department of Family and Child Services, and I said, I have to tell you what's going on. And so I told them, and after I reported it, the, the uh, caseworker called me back a few days later and said, tell me what happened, walk me through this situation. And by the end of the phone call, the caseworker was essentially calling me a liar and suggested that I was reporting this family so that I could get their government check. How'd you, how'd you know? You know, how'd you figure me out? You got me, you know? You nailed it this time, right? I mean, I was so angry. Are you kidding me? I called to help these children who were being beaten up by their own parents, and you tell me that I'm the problem? I don't like being doubted when it really matters. When I say, I'm here to help, and you just turn my help away. Do you like it when people accuse you of lying? Or they say, I don't believe a word you're saying. That's what Moses is doing to God. I will be with you. They will listen to you. No, they won't. Oh, really? Really? God's a real person. We are really questioning him. And so just be careful what you do with your doubts. I'm not saying doubts are wrong. I'm just saying use them properly to guide you to truth and to answers, not to dishonesty and disbelief. We shouldn't say with our doubt, I won't believe, but I don't understand. Help me. In my unbelief, don't say I won't, but I, I don't understand. Help me to believe. And God does help. He gives Moses help. Three physical signs to strengthen Moses' faith as he goes to testify to the Israelites and to the Egyptians that Yahweh will deliver his people. God graciously stoops down and says, OK, Moses, you are weak. You are doubting and I will help you. I am Yahweh. I'm with you. I'm powerful and I'm patient. My power is made perfect in your weakness. So what's the first sign? The first sign is the staff that no one wanted to snatch. Right? The staff is the shepherd's rod that Moses takes around in the desert to, to guide his sheep. And God says, what's that in your hand? Throw it to the ground. When he throws it to the ground, it turns into a serpent. Scales, fangs, the whole bit. I mean, Moses is a shepherd. He's been spending 40 years out in the rugged wilderness tending sheep, fighting off beasts. He runs. This is a real snake. He runs. Then God says, come back over here. Pick that snake up by the tail. And I'm, I'm from Louisiana, you know. I used to have pet snakes. I used to eat snakes, you know. I would never pick a snake up by the tail because it whips around and it can strike you. You pick it up where? Behind the head, right? Right behind the head. You put a stick on its head and you pick it up right behind the head. Then you can scare people with it, you know. But not by the tail. So pick it up by the tail. Yeah, right, God. Well, he, he obeys and does it, and this snake turns back into a harmless stick, a staff. This staff represents two different things. In Egypt, the scepter or the staff of the king was a symbol of power. If I have the scepter, I'm in charge. The snake, the cobra, was a sign of power in Egypt. What did Pharaoh wear on his headdress, the king of Egypt? A cobra right on the front. You remember that? Seen that in the, in the mummies and in the, in the movies? This is a symbol of power. God's saying, I'll take the staff, I'll take the snake, and I'll show you who's really in charge. Go to Pharaoh and show him this sign. 
Go to to Israel and show them who's really in charge. Remember what Romans 16 verse 20 tells us believers? The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Crush that serpent. Crush that oppressor under your feet. Go to the king of Egypt, that snake of a man, and tell him that God is in charge and that God is about to bust his people out of Egypt. And he says in verse 5, I'm doing this so they might believe that Yahweh, the God of their fathers, has appeared to you and will deliver you. Okay. Now, the people might say, yeah, yeah, we get it, Moses, just keep your staff on a leash. But what if they don't believe you? Well, here's the second sign. The second sign is the hand that nobody wanted to shake. Put your hand in the cloak. It comes out with this leprous skin disease, this disgusting Disease. Now, you know, Moses was probably a very tan man. He probably had brown skin and he was probably out in the sun a lot, shepherding. His skin turned white and shriveled up. In, in uh, Numbers chapter 12, verse 12, Moses' sister Miriam opposes Moses' authority and says, Who do you think you are, Moses, once again? And God strikes her with a, a leprous skin condition, something like this or maybe the same thing. And this is how it's described. Her skin looked like a stillborn infant coming from its mother's womb with its flesh half eaten away. It's pretty disgusting. This is what Moses' skin looked like. And then he said, now put it back in your cloak, take it out again. And when he did it a second time, his, hand, his skin is healthy and back to its normal complexion. And what's this about? Well, God says, okay, in a few weeks, I'm going to send you to Egypt and they're not going to listen to you. I'm going to say, sit, let my people go and they're not going to send you out. So I'm going to afflict them with skin diseases, boils on their skin. I have power to afflict and to heal. It's a major theme in the book of Exodus. God afflicts the oppressor and heals his people. And he even says that one day he makes a prophecy that he will afflict and heal Egypt of their sins. Now, if the people won't believe these first two signs, God will graciously give a third. The water that nobody wanted to drink. Take the water from the Nile River, which is the source of life of the people of Egypt. Pour it out on the ground. And when that H2O hits the ground, it will splatter in crimson red. It will become blood. Striking the Egyptians at their very life source. The fish will die in the river. They will have nothing to drink. They will be begging for mercy. The sign of bloody judgment that would come. Not just in the river, but even upon the firstborn of the Egyptians. The plague that would finally break Pharaoh's will and get God's people out of there. But here's Moses seeing all these three physical signs right from these miracles. And he still doubts. He doubts. He fears. Now, he's probably fearing people just as much as he's doubting in his own mind. I mean, he's thinking, I've got a whole massive crowd of Israelites and a massive army of Egypt to face. And you want me to tell them these things? I think what's going on is he's looking at the skeptics around him and they are causing his doubts to worsen. Now, your doubts are bad enough, but what happens when you start listening to friends or professors or the, the news or reading certain books written by skeptics and critics? Now, if you have strength and if you are critical, you can read those things and sift through and discern. And you might learn some things, but you can also see through the lies or the problems. And you, ha- you can see that, you know, not everything this person's saying can be trusted. I have to weigh my options and I have to keep going back to the source of truth, the ultimate truth in the Bible. It doesn't give me all the answers to life, but it gives me the ultimate answers to life. And so if you begin to listen to the skeptics and the critics and the doubters, your own doubts begin to increase, swell, and your heart begins to get dragged down. 
I think that's what's happening to Moses. He's saying, I don't think they're going to believe me. And I know they're not going to believe me. So therefore, I don't think I can believe you either. Doubt is contagious in that way. And so Moses doubts God in this questioning. And then we see in the text in verses 10 through 12 that Moses begins to doubt his own ability. He's not just doubting that God can pull this off, but he's saying, I don't think I'm the right guy for this job anyway, God. In verse 10, Moses literally says, not Yahweh, my speech is heavy and my tongue is heavy, but he says, Adonai. It's like he's ignoring the covenant name of God that was just revealed to him. I know that you just told me you're powerful and you're present and you're going to be with me always, but Lord, come on, let's get real here. I don't think this is going to work. Look at me. I'm 80 years old. I have some sort of speech impediment or I don't feel like I can go and, and be the right eloquent guy for the job. And that's funny, though, because in Acts chapter 7, verse 22, the, the uh, Stephen, the preacher, as he's preaching his final sermon and, and dying at the hands of the Jews as they're stoning him to death, he preaches about Moses and he says this about Moses. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was powerful in speech and in action. Hmm. I thought Moses was stumbling over his words. I thought he said, my mouth feels like I've been to the dentist and got numbed up. I can't really say these things that you want me to say, God. Well, apparently he was educated and pretty powerful in his elocution, his rhetoric, his speech. So what's going on? I think Moses is making an excuse. Plain and simple. No, there's a, there's a healthy sense of, okay, you want me to be the leader of two million people? And there's a healthy sense that the Bible says... Everyone should feel their dependence on God and say, who is competent for such things when we're called to preach the gospel or lead God's people? But I think this is just an excuse. God's clearly told him, I will be with you. I will give you the words to say. And he says, I'm not feeling up to it, God. Too old. Maybe you're feeling too young. Maybe you say, I don't have enough education yet. I don't have enough time as a Christian yet to go out there and share the gospel. Or maybe... I've sinned too much, and I don't think you can use me. I mean, these are things we all think. They're excuses. They're doubts. But God says, I've already told you. I'm calling you. I want to use you. You're mine. I have power to, to fill you with and send you with. He says in verse 11, the Lord says to Moses, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who blinds him or gives him eyes to see? Is it not I, Yahweh? He says, I'm the creator. I'm the sovereign Lord. I have authority over everything. I can use you, Moses. I made your mouth. I think I know what to do with it. I want you to think about your mouth for just a second. You can touch it if you want to. Just feel how it's created fearfully and wonderfully stitched together in your mother's womb, grown over time, especially if you've had some injections, you know. Um, just feel the soft lip cells, how they were stitched together. And how they, they slough off in the wintertime. You put that chapstick or Vaseline on them and, and they grow right back. It's amazing. And then, and then think of your teeth, the enamel on those teeth that protect that surface for many, many years, especially if you brush and floss. But God made those teeth. He, he made your tongue. He anchored it to the back of your throat. The fibers, it's a strong, powerful muscle. It can destroy Forests and worlds, James tells us, because our words are powerful. What we say to people can hurt their spirit and break them, or we can build them up. Your mouth is a vessel made by God. It's an instrument to be used for righteousness. Did you know that your mouth was made for God's glory? Your life was made to worship and witness to God. God says, I made your mouth, Moses. I know 
you and I'm going to use you. And don't deny that. The real question, Living Hope Church, is are we using our lips and our lives to honor Jesus, to, to witness to and worship the King in the world around us? We can, we can tell many beautiful things about God's world to the people around us. We don't just have to say, Jesus died on the cross. That's not the only good news there is. That's the heart of it. The atonement of Christ making sinners right with God. But there's so many good things that you should be telling people about that you're learning in this world that God has made. As God grows you and teaches you, and it all goes back to him. The glory is his. But are you using your lips in your life in the way you designed them to be used? Luke chapter 21 says something very similar to what God tells Moses here. Jesus tells his disciples, I will give you words, or literally, he says, I will give you a mouth and wisdom that none of your enemies will be able to resist or contradict. So at the time when you face questioning or other people's doubts or when they say, hey, Christian, are you kidding me? You think that a staff turned into a snake and that people walked across the Red Sea and it divided and that God appeared in a burning bush and that a man rose from the dead? Really? He says, I'll give you words and wisdom that no one can resist or contradict. They may not believe it, but the words will be true. They'll be accurate. They'll be honoring to me. God uses weak people like us to showcase his power, to change lives. He uses simple words, simple illustrations, simple scriptures to change human hearts. You don't have to be a professor. You don't have to be Moses to be faithful to what God has created you to be. God says in chapter 9, verse 16, here's why I'm doing this whole thing in Egypt, bringing my people out with miracles and signs and wonders. He says, I'm doing it to show my power so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. He says, Moses, this isn't for you. It's not about you. It's about me. People will see how awesome and wonderful I am when you simply obey. When I first moved here to Chicago, I met a man whose name is Bill. He was born blind. But the doctors gave him a cornea transplant in one of his eyes so that he could then see with 20% of normal vision in that one eye. Bill's father rejected him when he was born and said, I'm not going to raise a handicapped kid. Kids called him cross eyes, and he was always chosen last on the playground for playing kickball and whatnot. He told me that making friends had been hard all his life, even as an adult, because he can't make eye contact with people very well. He's never had a girlfriend. When Bill was 11, someone told him that God is a father who would love him with an eternal free love and that his love wasn't based on his looks or his abilities. He received Christ's love immediately on the spot. Bill told me that he loved John chapter 9, the Gospel of John, because the story there is the man born blind. And Jesus says this man's disability has a purpose, that I would display my works in the world and in his life. Jesus healed that blind man. He didn't heal Bill completely. He has 20% sight in one eye. But Bill told me that he's learned that through his weakness, and it was his very weakness, the weakness itself, how God has been changing him and glorifying himself in him and, and showing him his utter love for him. Last year, we had the Presbytery meeting here where all the pastors in the Chicago region in the Presbyterian church come and, and they came into our space. And Bill was here that day. He's a pastoral counselor helping other people in their disabilities and their doubts to find the Lord, to find truth. 
to find the grace of God in Christ. God's power is made perfect in weakness. And Yahweh promises that to Moses. He says, I know you're weak, but I'm strong. I am who I am. I am sovereign. I made your mouth. I know what to do with you. Now go, he says, I will help you. Literally, I will be with your mouth. I will teach you what to say. Even after all that, though, Moses keeps doubting. Just like so many other people in the Bible that are called by God. I mean, I can think of so many, but just for the sake of time, I'll tell you one. Gideon. Remember the story of Gideon? Gideon has a very similar call to Moses. You know, Moses at the burning bush, the fire in the bush, the angel of the Lord calls him, reveals God's name to him. Gideon, sitting under a tree, and the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, Gideon, mighty warrior, you're going to be used to go and defeat the Midianites. And where is Gideon found? Next, he's hiding in the wine press, which is an indoor room, to thresh the wheat, to, to get the wheat out of the fields, bring it inside and thresh it. He's, he's supposed to do that outside in the field so the wind can blow away the chaff. But he's inside hiding. He's, he's turned to an indoor gardener because he's afraid that the Midianites are going to steal his crops. And God says to him, mighty warrior, while he's trembling in fear, I'm going to use you. And he doubts. He says, I, I need a sign, God. I need a sign. So God sends what? Fire to consume a sacrifice that he's made. And he says, okay, that was good. I need another sign. So he sends him a second sign. What's that? He puts a piece of wool, lamb's wool, some fleece outside, and God says, okay, the fleece is going to be full of dew. It's going to be sopping wet, but the ground all around will be dry. He says, that was good, God. But I need another sign. So the next day he gives him another sign. Now the wool will be completely bone dry and the ground around wet with dew. Finally says, okay, I can lead your people into battle now. Isn't that how we are? We want sign after sign. Now we have to be careful here. Because God has given us signs to Moses. He's given us signs in the scriptures. He's given us plenty of signs in our life and other people that we can see around us. God is changing them and and leading them in in very specific ways. But we still say, okay, okay, that was good. I like that one, God, but give me another one. And I, I can't believe until you give me more. Be careful. There's a line that we can cross here. Jesus actually says an adulterous and sinful generation keeps demanding a sign. And he says the only sign... Given at some point, God's going to say the only sign you're going to get is the sign of judgment. I mean, what's enough's enough. Like, can't we believe God at his word? Hasn't he shown us enough? God says to Moses in verse 12, I'm your creator. You're the creature. Listen to me now. I am Yahweh. Now go. Get out of here. Do what I said. I'm God. You're not. What are you talking about, Moses? They're not going to listen to you. And still, Moses says in verse 13, Oh, Adonai, again, doesn't say Yahweh. Oh, oh Lord, please send someone else. Please, just don't use me. I don't want to be used. Don't make me do it. And God says, Moses, don't make me do it. It literally says the, the nostrils of God burned hot. It says the Lord was angry. Literally, the Hebrew says his nostrils flared. You know how people get mad, their veins pop out, their nostrils flare. God's nostrils flared. He's upset. He says, you've crossed the line, son. Okay, eventually Moses picks up on that and he starts to move. But not before God gives him one more sign, one more gracious sign. Even after God's angry with him, he still says, okay, I will give you one more sign. I'll give you a helper, your brother Aaron. So we see in verse 14, Yahweh told Moses that his brother Aaron will go help him because Aaron can speak well. Aaron will be like your mouth. 
And you'll be like God to Aaron. That means you'll tell him what to say because I've told you what to say. So you go tell him. He's going to go tell the people of Israel. And so you see Aaron and Moses going together to Israel. Moses does end up speaking. Maybe he gets his confidence back because he's got a friend with him, his brother, a partner. And I just want you to stop and think about that for a minute. That God says to Moses in verse 15, I will be with both of your mouths. I will teach both of you what to say. He's very gracious to, to stoop down and say, okay, Moses, I'll meet you in your weakness. I'll give you one more help. He doesn't he do that for us? I'm not asking you to go out there by yourself and change the world. God's not telling you, go and share the gospel with the hardest people all alone by yourself and there's no support. No, he says, hey, you have a pastor, you have friends sitting next to you, you have books, you have the internet, you have Bible studies you can attend and you can invite people to. We're in community here. We're not doing this alone. God doesn't say, I'm sending you out and I will be with you individually, singly. He says, singular, he says, I'm going with all of you together. Together I'm calling you to go and share the good news to the world and live a life that would honor me in this place. Yahweh is with us. You could say the church itself is a sign that we should believe. Just because there is a church, because we're here gathered, that's a sign that God is with us, that he's doing something in us. Amen? But we have something even better than that. We have something better than burning bushes or... Sticks turned into snakes or hands diseased and healed. We have something better than water turning to blood. We have a better prophet than Moses. We have a better priest than Aaron. We have a better king than Pharaoh ever was. We have Jesus, our helper. This is what God has done for us. You doubt? You don't believe me? Are you kidding me? You're still going to turn away from me after all I've done? Okay, I will give you Jesus. I will send him to be a human. Live a perfect life, never disobeying me. And any time he had a doubt, he trusted me and obeyed me. And it led to life for all. His death led to life. He will die for you. That will be the sign. You want a sign? I will send my son to the cross. He will give up his life unto death. And then he will rise from the dead. Invincible. Indestructible. Immortal. The king of kings and lord of lords. I'll give you a sign. I'll give you Jesus. That's the sign you need. You know, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, God tells Moses the prophet, he says, I will raise up a prophet from among Israel like you, Moses, and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. A prophet greater than Moses predicted in Deuteronomy 18. That's Jesus. The book of Acts tells us that's Jesus, the greater prophet. Who would perform many miraculous signs? He would turn water into what? Not blood. Wine. He would not take a stick and turn it into a snake, but he would curse a fig tree and its green, healthy limbs would wither and die. He would take a leprous hand on a man and heal him in front of all the people. Jesus is the great priest. He's, God says to, to Moses, I will send you your brother Aaron. You know, Aaron was the first high priest in Israel. He would go before God and make sacrifices to, to forgive the sins of the people. And, and Jesus is our better Aaron. He's our better priest. He goes and doesn't just sacrifice the bodies of animals to forgive sins, but he gives his own life as an atonement for sins. He's the priest and the sacrifice. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Power made perfect in weakness. The weakness of the cross. And Jesus is the better king than Pharaoh. He comes not with a cobra on his crown, but with a thorn of crowns on his head. And he crushes the head of the serpent by being crucified. Power and weakness. 
resurrection to new life in immortal strength. Jesus was better than Moses. He never doubted God and said, I'm going to have to just turn away this way. The, the closest we see of Jesus doubting is when he said, I'm not sure that I want to go to the cross and be crucified for the sins of other people when I was blameless myself. If this is your will, God, then I'll do it. But if, if you could possibly just take this cup away from me, I would rather not. If there's another way, but knowing there was no other way, he set his face to Jerusalem and he died on the cross for us. God never had to tell him twice. God didn't have to give him a pep talk or give him three signs and then another sign. <laughs> Jesus knew the word of God and he obeyed it. He is the word of God. Jesus didn't need a sign. He is the sign. And we have him for our very own. He comes to dwell not just with us as Yahweh, but in us with his Holy Spirit. Are you looking for a sign? I mean, should I say more? Jesus is your Savior. The only sign we'll ever need. He's, he's come to live in you with his Holy Spirit. That is the sign that God's given us. The pledge of our salvation and of his love to us. Power to go and do his will. Now I'm going to open this up for you guys and let you tell me what a few signs are that God has shown you in your life. So I've given you a couple starters. Jesus, okay, I covered the easy one there. The cross, the resurrection, his mighty miracles. The Holy Spirit who dwells among us. I've also mentioned the church. But what other signs has God given us? Go ahead and just shout them out. What signs do you have to strengthen your faith and confirm that God is with us? That God loves you. There are many. I'll turn it over to you. Shout them out. Grace and mercy. What else? Power. Say it louder. Power. power. The same power that crushed the enemy. The same power lives in me. What else? Just shout, shout it out. Well, my grandmother taught me when I was really, really small that there's power in the name of Jesus. So at different times when disasters were going on, like a car, we were about to get in a car accident one time in the middle of a blizzard and our car slid and we were headed straight toward the gas station and the car just Power in the name of Jesus. Yeah. What else? Other signs. Joy. Joy. That is a sign. Mama. The Bible. Hey, if you're looking for a sign, have you read this? <laughs> if you haven't, look no further. Creation. 
creation. All the heavens declare the glory of God. What else? Let's get a couple more. Prayer. Answers to prayer, right? Worship. Remember we talked about last week, God said, I will give you a sign, Moses. And it wasn't just a burning bush. It was that the people would worship him at the mountain. That was the sign. When God's people gather to worship, a sign that he's with us. How about the Lord's Supper? The sign of the body and the blood of Jesus represented in the, the wine and the bread. That he's with us. He's present. So many signs. Let me just close with a couple quick stories of my week. I was preaching on signs and I kept having these weird instances happen. For instance, on Monday I send Alex my song list for the week or suggestions that like here's things that would fit with the sermon. And there was this one song that had the phrase in it, the same power. And I couldn't remember the name of the song, but I kept thinking that phrase. I was like, I like that song. I can't remember what it's called. So I searched on Google, the same power, and like all these signs popped, these songs popped up, but. They're like, that's not the one I'm thinking of. That's not the one. They're like three songs. Some of them are called Same Power and some of them have the words in it, but it's like none of these work. So I just didn't put it in there as a suggestion. Well, then I look at my email last night and I see that Alex has chosen that song as our first song for today. He's risen. He's risen. The Same Power. I was like, oh yeah, the Same Power. That's the one I was thinking of. Okay, that was good. And then, you know, the bus last week, um, a very skinny person stepped on the bottom step of the bus and it collapsed because it had rusted out apparently. And so I was trying to fix it this week, but I was looking around the church for like parts and I needed a piece of angled steel to make a new frame. And I was like, I don't have anything like that here. I'm going to have to drive across town to go buy something. And as I was literally kneeling on a piece of cardboard in the snow, looking at the bus, um, I, I, I raised my eyes and 10 feet away. There's a steel bed frame with the perfect size angled steel. I was like, okay, that'll work. That'll work. And then last week when it was about five degrees, our furnace stopped working on our third floor in our house and it got pretty cold. And I tried my very best. I've fixed furnaces before in our house. I've called people to repair them and they fix them and they always seem to break. So I was like, I'm not spending money on this. I'm going to try to fix it myself. So three or four days I keep trying and it's just not working. And finally I said, you know what? Maybe I should pray. So I prayed, God, please give us heat. The furnace came on that minute. It worked all night, stopped the next morning again. It's like, dang, that was an ineffective, that was a short-lived prayer, but thank you. Like, I feel, I was happy all night long. We were all happy. We were warm. The next night, I'm back at it again, trying to fix it, Googling things. I don't know why I didn't think to pray again, but I'm Googling, I'm, I'm moving stuff around, I'm plugging things back in and cleaning stuff off and the whole thing, nothing happening. I spent probably 20 minutes. I said, maybe I should pray again. I prayed. It came on instantly. I started yelling like, whoa, we have heat. And I'm like yelling at the furnace, like, stay on furnace. And like, don't die furnace. And like, I step away, literally, it dies. <laughs> I'm not joking. My kids witnessed this. I step back up to it. I lay my hands on it. It comes back on. Whoosh. I was like, whoa, I'm Presbyterian. This is not supposed to be happening. So I, they're like, you're going to have to sleep on the furnace all night and lay your hands on it, daddy. Like Moses and the Amalekites, you know, raise your hands. It's still working. It's still working. It's not working perfectly, but it's keeping our house warm. Thank you, Lord. I mean, little things that I was like, okay, I didn't deserve that. I have enough signs already. But thank you, Lord, for answering prayers, for reminding us together 
that you're with us, that you're good, that we have doubts, but we know you love us and we know that your power is made perfect in the weakness. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. The same power that crushed the enemy led a people free from Egyptian bondage for 400 years. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the same power that turns lives around and changes human hearts, the same power that changes families and neighborhoods and the world is with us. And so, God, we pray now that you give us strength to believe and take our doubts, which are real, which we have, our questions, which are necessary to ask, and help us to find good, sufficient answers. Even if we don't get all the answers we want, help us to see that you are good, that you are true, that we are your people and you are our God, and you'll be with us forever. In the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen. Let's stand and call on the name of the Lord that he'll bring his kingdom here. We will celebrate how his kingdom is already here in Christ.